John Glidith Opaid. In his new book, The Dead Center, Reflections on Liberalism and Democracy After the End of History, Luke Savage, a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine, looks at contemporary politics, particularly those of mainstream liberals in the United States. It's published by OR Books and brings Luke Savage to our show now. Welcome. Hi, Leonard. Thanks so much for having me. The uh, opening sentence of your book reads, I had the slight misfortune of being born just as the future was being canceled. Well, when was that and when, why did I miss that? Wow. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I was born at the end of the 1980s. I mean, just, just barely squeaked in at the end of the 1980s. Uh, I suppose I can't remember if it was before or after the wall, the Berlin Wall came down. Um, but... Uh, you know, what I meant by that, I suppose, rather vague and evocative sentence was that, uh, you know, I, I think I, I came of age politically in a world where um, the kinds of political horizons that existed perhaps in the mid 20th century or that we would associate with maybe the 1960s, uh, those horizons had, had not only receded, but um, I think the very idea of political progress as people had understood it. Um, for for much of the preceding, you know, uh, 50 or 60 years after the Second World War, say, or from the 1930s onwards, um, uh, you, you know, th- th- that, that really wasn't present anymore. And instead, what you had was a new and much more uh, conservative type of political order where, um, you know, there was a belief uh, by this point, a bipartisan belief, really, um, uh, that that, you know, moving forward in any kind of transformative way was no longer possible. So that was something you found, obviously, in the United States through the Bill Clinton presidency, um, you know, which which I would say broadly accepted the the tenets of, of Reaganism, um, you know, and modified them in, in certain ways, of course. Um, but it was also true, I think, importantly, of uh, the the left as well, the, you know, the, the socialist left, that is, mm-hmm. um, you know, socialists, uh, broadly speaking, had uh, worked in various ways throughout the 20th century on the idea that, uh, you know, some kind of significant transformation of society, particularly the economic system, was possible. And by the 1990s, almost nobody, I think, seriously uh, believed that anymore. Well, since the early 1990s, hasn't centrism been the consensus in Britain and and North America in particular? Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, and I think that, you know, the, the really significant thing about that is that um, you know, I, I mentioned it near the beginning of the book as well, but, you know, it's very much captured in, in you know, this now, I suppose, infamous turn of phrase by Francis Fukuyama, uh, where he talked about the end of history. So that was kind of how grand uh, the centrist vision was in the 1990s. You know, it wasn't just, um, you know, we've kind of settled things for the next 25 or 30 years or so. It was um, we've we've settled things Forever, um, which I think has some very important consequences and, and implications for how politics has, um, you know, played out uh, played out since then. Because even when there have been major crises, uh, like, for example, the two thousand and eight two thousand and nine financial crisis, uh, they are not taken as moments uh, for you know, reimagining the, the essentials or, or you know, transforming the fundamental um, the, the fundamentals of um, 
you know, uh, the political and, and economic order, uh, it, which is a, which is distinct from the 1930s, wow. say, where you know FDR looked at the Great Depression and and there was a you know this huge climate of um, labor militancy and other things, and and he decided that. Uh, I think the phrase he used, in fact, was that he thought America needed to become fairly radical for at least a generation. And that's not the kind of sentiment that you're likely to find today. And you're critical of Barack Obama for not having done more in that regard. Uh, But let's get back to Francis Fukuyama. His book, uh, how influential was it? Didn't it become almost the Bible of the global emerging neoliberal corporatist consensus after it came (laughs) out in the 1990s? Uh, But of course, that was also after the fall of the Soviet Union. Yes, that's true. Um, I mean, how influential the book itself was, I think, is is an open question. And, And frankly, I don't feel entirely qualified to answer it. I think for my purposes, what the significance of, uh, of the book is and, and the turn of phrase uh, is that it, uh, it, just, it epitomizes, if you want, the, the spirit of that time. Um, you know, I think it's just very significant um, for a political consensus to think about itself in those terms, to think about itself as, as completely uh, as completely permanent. And you're and uh, we should talk about the Soviet Union. I mean, uh, by this point, of course, by the 1980s, by the early 1990s, you know, the Soviet Union was, uh, you know, a deeply dysfunctional uh, society. And of course, going, you know, go back a few decades before that um, into the 1950s. And it was, uh, you know, an incredibly uh, repressive society as well. Um, so, you know, I'm certainly not uh, in, in, lament, in, in, in singling out the moment of the early 1990s. Um, you know, I'm not exactly lamenting the demise of the Soviet Union, but rather I think the foreclosure of possibility, uh, future possibility that you know, a variety of movements, including, um, you know, the, the you know, democratic socialist movements of the uh, 20th century had, had uh, been associated with. Well, you say that when you were a teenager in the early 2000s, the left really was very different from the left as it exists now. In, in what ways? Yeah, I mean, uh, this really struck me. Uh, you know, I started thinking about it a lot in 2016, I think, with the first of the two Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns. Um, when I first, uh, you know, as a, uh, you know, sort of irritating know-it-all teenager, when I became involved in, uh, you know, left-wing politics and in various ways. But you were in really, Canada. Were you uh, living here at the time? You're a Canadian. No, I... I was living in Canada, although, you know, as a Canadian, I was deeply engaged, as I think many Canadians uh, uh, are with, uh, you know, what was going on in the United States. And this was true in in my own country. And it was true in, uh, you know, the United States as well. Um, The left was a very depressing place. You didn't find many people there. Um, It it tended to, uh, I would say, broadly tilt a bit older. You certainly didn't find as many, uh, you know, younger people there. And I think uh, much of it was uh, very defensive in its posture. You know, there would be, you know, uh, cuts to a cuts to a welfare, but, you know, uh, cuts to social spending or, or, you know, uh, welfare payments or something like that. You know, name a cause. And, you know, our position would be, well, we have to stop that from happening. But what was missing was a positive project of our own. I really don't think we had one. And. Um, though I didn't, I didn't see it in these terms at the time. I think you know what I've realized since is that after the 1980s, especially, a lot of the left became more um, 
it became, you know, it retreated somewhat, I would say, into the academy and it became more theoretical. And that was a consequence of there being much less of a belief that things could actually be changed in a, in a significant way. Well, if you uh, look at the current political situation, uh, the, uh, the people we think of as uh, being on the left seem to have less clout these days than people like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> well, I mean, um, I, I do think that the, 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 the right, I mean, whatever we, whatever we call that, the populist right, although I don't like exactly to use that term because I think it's giving them too much credit. But um, certainly uh, figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene are, uh, you know, extremely visible and, um, and, they're, and they're a threat. Um, I can say more about that if you want. Well, sure. Uh, you know, let's talk about this topic. For example, well, first of all, I, I want to get to your title. What do you mean by the dead center? It can mean exactly in the middle or that the political center is dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, it means it means both, I suppose, although I think in the latter case, the more precise meaning would be uh, or the more precise word would be the undead center, because, of course, the center isn't dead. I mean, the center in the it's United where States everything is right now. It, uh-huh. It's 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 in power. Right. Um, Biden, the consummate centrist, uh, won the 2020 election and is in power. Um, so in that sense, the center is not dead. But I, I mean, uh, I mean something a little bit different by it. I think that the uh, you know, it's possible to be in power, um, but not be, uh, you know, advancing a, an agenda or an ideology in a significant way. And I think. Uh, broadly speaking, when centrists do, um, you know, do come to power today, when they wield power, you know, Barack Obama is another example of this. And I hope we'll get to talk talk about of him course. in a little more detail. But, you know, uh, you know, Barack Obama, who, you know, tremendously gifted speaker, charismatic fellow. Um, I you thought know, he was uh, one of the smartest politicians I've ever met. I think I think that's uh, I think that's I, I think that's an apt uh, description. I, mean, I think he's the. Uh, the most skillful practitioner of this kind of politics, or he has been the most skillful. But we expected him to change things a lot more than he did. That's right. And so, uh, so that's an example, I think, of what I'm talking about. Um, When even in the case of, of something like 2008, we have this very exciting election, people are very mobilized. It's right at the end of the financial, or it's during the financial crisis, excuse me. You know, it's coming at the end of the hated Bush years with, um, the invasion of Iraq and the war on terror. And it seems for a lot of people, including my 19 year old self, I, I want to add, you know, it seems to represent the, the defeat of all those things, the negation of all those things. But then, um, you know, I think just to go back to your question about the dead center, I mean, what you find is that, or what we, we found is that, uh, you know, even with that as the backdrop, um, there was not a significant effort made to change things in any kind of um, fundamental way. So dead or if you want the dead or if you want undead center, I think, um, you know, refers to uh, the fact that even when uh, the, the the so-called political center wields power, uh, it's it's really exercising it within the confines or, or, or within terms that are be, that have been set um you know, uh, I think largely by, well, largely by the right and, and uh, also, you know, by, uh, you know, conservative liberals, if you want, uh, as well. Well, you suggest that uh, Joe Biden 
uh, has largely situated himself in the dead center throughout most of his career. You say he's engaged in milk toast politics. Uh, but uh, even though he's been an advocate of small government, hasn't that changed since he's come into office? Until until recently, he was saddled with low approval ratings. But hasn't he had a number of recent successes that will please people on the left? Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is worth exploring, and it's worth going into in some detail. I mean, I should say, uh, you know, the the book was, uh, you know, the, the book obviously was assembled. You know, unfortunately, I'm not able to. You know, update it with uh, with each uh, with each successive development in the Biden administration. Biden administration, although rather neurotically, I'd like to. Um, but it's a it's a good question, and I think what I would say about Biden is that uh, I think that his administration uh, did break in in certain respects. At least there's some degrees of difference, let's say, between uh, Biden's first term and and Obama's. I mean, um, Biden, unlike Obama, did. Uh, you know, come out with this big, this big spending package. Um, you know, the first bill. I mean, I think that probably still the largest domestic uh, spending bill um, of the administration was uh, barely. I think just over a month in, in February of twenty uh, twenty one or something like that. And uh, you know, this had uh, a lot of economic relief. You know, you had the child tax credit. I mean, measures that uh, you know cut poverty in in half. Virtually cut poverty in half among children. I should say. Um, and then uh, proceed, Biden proceeded to roll out these very large, you know, initially it was, I think, a six trillion dollar package of domestic spending or six trillion over over the next 10 years. So a little smaller than perhaps the number suggests, but still more than anything Obama was willing to do. Um, the caveat I would issue here, which I think is is an important one, is that um, I think the administration, by and large, is still um, in spite of these things pursued a, a fairly conventional political strategy. Uh, it has been very uh, content, I think, to try to work within the beltway, um, you know, and, and, and do uh, kind of beltway horse trading in order to get, to get its agenda passed. Um, so, for example, uh, the decision that was made, I think, within the first six months to split the spending bill into two, uh, I realize we're getting into the weeds a bit, but I think it's important, split the spending bill into uh, two packages, one that was, uh, you know, kind of a would have bipartisan support and the other one which contained, um, you know, all the significant environmental and social expenditure. You know, that's that's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, you do if you just want to win. Um, if you want to if you want to get a political win, um, in this case, with the much more conservative package that has Republican buy-in, um, you know that, that was the that was the course that they took, and they did that in lieu of what I think uh, history suggests, American history and just history generally suggests, is what you need to do if you're going to pass, um, you know, if you're going to make something like the child tax credit um, or or, or healthcare reform. Uh, uh, you know, if you're going to if you're going to uh, embed those and make them make them permanent. Um, and that is to uh, rally and mobilize support outside of uh, the beltway, outside of uh, the kind of you know elite brokerage that happens in Congress. This was something that I think, uh, you know, to re- refer back to the 1930s, it's something Roosevelt was uh, was very open about is that, uh, you know, he saw himself to some extent in his administration as riding on this wider context of militancy and, and discontent. Um, and so, you know, I think, again, to, you know, uh, 
point out the, a, a way in which Biden has been different than Obama. You know, he has uh, issued some statements in support of union drives and things like that. I think that's uh, I think that's good. Um, it's you know very positive to have the president supporting a union drive. Um, but that's not uh, the strategy that he's, I think, um, taken overall has not been to, you know, tell uh, his supporters to fill the streets and in, in support of their, um, you know, in support of their agenda. Um, you know, and I think that came out in uh, I mean, we can we can move on from this whenever you well, like. Well, I, I, I have it, to do a little station break. Just tell people that my guest is Luke Savage, <laughs> whose book, The Dead Center, Reflections on Liberalism and Democracy after uh, the dead center after the end of history is published by OR Books and this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM uh streaming live at wbai.org uh, uh, Biden seems to have uh, been pushed a bit by uh what the republicans are doing he's angered many republicans by calling the extreme maga philosophy semi-fascism and that's, a lot of Republicans are getting upset uh, by the the invocation of the word fascist. Yes, I think that's I think that's true. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if the shoe fits, I suppose. But, um, you know, I don't think it's I don't, I don't think there's anything particularly novel about that. I mean, I think since the beginning of Donald Trump's I mean, since his candidacy began to look serious at the end of 2015 or early in 2016, perhaps, um, you know, the MAGA movement has been, uh, you know, regularly talked about as as extremist and and fascist or fascistic in nature. You know, I think, you know, Hillary Clinton gave that speech in 2016 about the alt-right. So uh, certainly upsets um, it certainly upsets figures on the right. But, uh, you know, we need to do more than they need to be more than upset. They need to be beaten. Well, some people will never forgive Biden for chairing the committee that put Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. So, yes, uh, I, I mean, uh, he I, has I was, moved a bit since then, I would think. Perhaps history. Perhaps. I mean, I, I, I maybe I, Donald a, Trump has been uh, one of the motivating forces. It's possible. I mean, I would like to think uh, myself that one of the motivating forces has been uh, the fact that there is more um, there is a more organized and powerful left now than there was before, both in a congressional sense. Some of these uh, insurgent candidacies that have been successful from from AOC's uh, onward. Um, but also, I think just more widely, there's. Um, you know, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, I mean, the, the left is, despite uh, we shouldn't exaggerate, it's not, uh, it, you know, it's not a, a hugely powerful block, but it is more, I think it does have more power and influence um, than it did, um, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And I think that to some extent is, um, you know, albeit in, in ways that I still find somewhat conservative, I think the administration is, uh, is, is somewhat responsive to that, which is, um, which is a difference, another difference from 2008 and what we saw with Obama. Well, over the years, the Democratic Socialists have endorsed uh, a wide range of Democratic presidential candidates, including Walter Mondale, Jesse Jackson, John Kerry, Barack Obama, Bernie Sanders, uh, as well as uh, a Green Party candidate, Ralph Nader and, and some third party candidates. But that's a wide range. Not all of those people are very much of the left, are they? No, I think that's exactly right. And and I think it reflects, um, you know, what uh, what I was feeling as a teenager, which is that, you know, the, the sense of possibility that existed before the sense of being able to change things 
uh, really no longer existed, you know, such that you get to 2004 and the, the Democratic Socialists of America are endorsing John Kerry because the posture has become, again, a, a defensive one. It's become about uh, mitigating damage um, as opposed to advancing a positive program. I think that that uh, is, I think, what's captured in, in the trajectory you just laid out. Uh but uh, as you point out, Obama was less effective than people on the left had hoped he'd be. Um, I have a feeling that race played a factor in all of that. I think that's true. I mean, I think there can be absolutely no people doubt. People assume that, that the, because he was African-American that he would perhaps push the country a bit further to the left than he did. Perhaps, although what I was going to say is I think that the uh, the currents that uh, metastasized on the political right after the election of Obama, beginning with the Tea Party and culminating perhaps in the in, in Donald Trump's campaign and the MAGA movement. I mean, I think uh, those clearly have a racial dimension. The ra- racism clearly pay, played a part in, in, in all of that. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, uh, I mean, from, from my own experience, you know, I, I, uh, as a teenager believed Obama wanted to be a transformative figure, that that's what he was setting out to do. Um, and I think, you know, in retrospect, uh, I think I've come around to the idea that, you know, it wasn't so much that he tried to do that and, and failed. It was that it was not something that he ever wanted to do begin with, to begin with. And I think he's been very explicit about that. And, um, you know, the longest essay in uh, the book, for example, is about uh, it's a review of Barack Obama's volume one of his memoirs, uh, which I, you know, it's about 800 pages long, which I read in um, excruciating detail. And I think he's uh, I think he's quite explicit that that's not um, that's not how he saw himself uh, at all. And really, the, the political genius of Obama um, and what, what he's able to do, I think, better um, than anyone else is. Uh, speak in this kind of soaring transcendent register um, without really being very ideologically committed to, uh, you know, a, a progressive policy agenda. Um, and, uh, you know, that that was something that uh, I think a lot of us learned the hard way, uh, you know, after his election in 2008. I should have mentioned before that many of the chapters in this book are articles that have been published in Jacobin and not just the one on Barack Obama, but also reviews of books by Pete Buttigieg, David Pluff, uh, Matt Taibbi, Christopher R. Martin, James Carville. And you've written about Tony Blair, Beto O'Rourke, Amy Klobuchar, Chris Matthews, the influence of the tech industry, the impact of neoliberalism. And I want to go back to some of those things, but um, let's talk a bit more about neoliberalism and what that means and its implications. Sure. I mean, uh, neoliberalism is, um, you know, it's a complicated beast, um, particularly because these days uh, you will frequently encounter people, and the last essay in the book actually deals with this, you'll encounter people who actually deny its existence. Um, you know, they say it's, it's a slur that people on the left, you know, hurl at uh, moderates or something like that. Um, but neoliberalism is... Uh, you know, it was it, it was and is a very conscious political project. It obviously, began with figures on the political right. You know, beginning in the late 1970s, where there was, you know, a, a wider context of global economic turbulence for a number of reasons. And 
figures like uh, Ronald Reagan and, and Margaret Thatcher, and I think, you know, very, very adeptly and skillfully at the level of politics in, in Britain, you know, were able to advance a, a really a, a quite a different vision of society and were able to embed, um, you know, embed their their values and their um, their vision of a society where, you know, the market really was the the main steering mechanism and and political democracy was subordinate to it, which I think is the, the main implication of neoliberalism. But then by the time you get to the 1990s, neoliberalism, its most fervent and zealous supporters, I think, often are liberals. It's people like Bill Clinton, um, uh, who called, you know, people at least, I don't know if Bill Clinton called himself that explicitly, but certainly people in his orbit did. And Tony Blair, who gets elected in 19, 1997 in the United Kingdom and, and wins this historic landslide, um, you know, is is a very conscious practitioner of this uh, of this uh, of this philosophy. Um, so uh, rejected Neil- ultimately by one of the. Uh- can I say this? One of the least impressive politicians I've ever met in my life, Boris Johnson. Tony, to, oh, Boris Johnson. Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Johnson is uh, Johnson is an absolute clown. And I suppose like Donald Trump, uh, there are some differences between the two of them. But um, that is that is very much his appeal. You know, he's like Trump. He's a figure of the like, consummately a figure of the British establishment. Um, and you know, yet is, uh, you know, kind of uh, has succeeded, I guess, uh, in having this, you know, what 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 registers for people anyway, is this, you know, populist aura, because he's, uh, you know, because he's so silly, and he kind of makes a mockery of things. And but yet he was been, able to replace Tony Blair. Uh, Boris Johnson was? Yes, wasn't he? Uh, well, Gordon Brown, I suppose, comes right yeah, after but Tony I meant, Blair. I mean, that whole political movement in England. He moved the country to the right. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I miss I misunderstood your question. Um, that's that's true. But again, I, I you know, uh, neoliberalism, you know, we're, when we talk about neoliberalism, we're talking about something that is uh, now it's a, it's a bipartisan phenomenon. So Boris Johnson is a neoliberal and, and so is Tony Blair. Um, <laughs> there are degrees of difference in terms of political style and in terms of the, you know, to some extent, the constituencies that that they represent, um, uh, you know, and that's true in, in the United States between Democrats and Republicans as well. And what but about in so Canada? F- what about Trudeau? It's absolutely true, uh, true of Trudeau as well. You know, Trudeau uh, is certainly not politically identical to uh, the Conservative Party, uh, which is to his right. Um, but broadly speaking, uh, all of these, all of this contestation, if you want, is happening within uh, premises or on on atop premises, if you want, um, that have that I think of, of are, are treated as as settled, um, and that that I think is one of the most important things. Since you asked about neoliberalism, that's one of the most important consequences of it. Is it's not that you don't have political debate anymore. It's just that the, the, the confines in which it's happening are much, much narrower. So uh, the consequences of having, say, a Tony Blair versus a Boris Johnson, I mean, there are differences, but they're smaller than there would have been, for example, in the 1970s in choosing, um, you know, Harold Wilson, say, British prime minister in the 1970s over, you know, Edward Heath, or to go back even further, uh, Clement Attlee over Winston Churchill. Uh, or something like that. 
Is it just my imagination that, or are politicians on the extreme right, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Greg Abbott, Ron DeSantis, Ted Cruz, do, uh, do they have more clout and get more attention these days than Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, and Rashida Tlaib? Talib? It's, it's partly a difficult question to answer because the media, uh, the, the media sphere is so siloed now that uh, I think both of those groups you just mentioned get lots of attention, um, you know, on one, uh, uh, you know, for among one half, as it, as, as it were, of, of you know, uh, media consumers and, and, you know, party supporters. Um, but I think that uh, I think that's still broadly true. Uh, what you said, I, I think. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Tucker Carlson, Donald Trump, um, you know, name a figure on the right. I think they get more attention, although I think that's partly a consequence of they're not being in power, um, you know, when saying uh, outrageous things at times. That's that's right. And and uh, I think, you know, when. Uh, uh, you know, when when the if the polls were switched and, uh, you know, there was a Republican administration in power, I think we'd also see the the rhetorical polls switch somewhat. And I think, you know, what Republicans are able to do when they're not in power is adopt a kind of fraudulent anti-establishment posturing because, you know, they're technically they're, they're not in power. Um, you know, they're able to channel a sense of victimhood. And I think that becomes a lot less true when they're um, when one of their own is, is in power. Although, of course, um, you know, there was a sense of victimhood in, in a way that ran through the Trump presidency as well. But I think uh, I think uh, what you said in your question is partly a reflection of, of that. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Come, senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't lock up the hall For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled The battle outside raging Will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls For the times they are changing I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Luke Savage. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The Dead Center, Reflections on Liberalism and Democracy After the End of History. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. That's give and then the number 2. WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. If you do that, we'll be happy to send you a copy of the book. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopez at Large. And we thank you very much. And I return now to Luke Savage. His book is published by OR Books, uh, and it contains a lot uh, of um, many of, of the chapters are essays he's written for Jacobin magazine, uh, which you um, uh, Bhaskar Sunkara, the founder of Jacobin, uh, describes the magazine as a radical publication being largely the product of a younger generation, not quite as tied to the Cold War paradigms that sustained leftist intellectuals in the past, like like dissent or new politics, but still eager to confront rather than table the questions that arose from the experience of the left in the 20th century. Is is that where you see yourself? 
I uh, I think uh, yeah, broadly speaking, that is where I'd see uh, see myself. I think that um, I, I I have a, a an aversion, I suppose, in a sense, to generational politics, and that I don't want to. Uh, you know, ever make it sound in my writing or, or, or when I talk that there's, um, you know, belonging to a particular generation inevitably means you have a, a particular political perspective. I think that's a dangerous trap to get in. Um, having said that, I, I think that um, the uh, the sentiment that you just quoted from Bhaskar there is something that is very strongly felt today among uh, you know, people under 40, let's say. Um, I was going to say, you know, young people. A lot of us aren't, aren't so young anymore. But so are say, you seeing under- a recent trajectory of younger people away from the liberal mainstream and toward the socialist left? I think that's, uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's exactly the, the trajectory um, for, for many of us. You know, we shouldn't shouldn't exaggerate it. But uh, there's a there's an assumption which uh, a lot of us, I think, make and is easy to make that younger people have all, you know, they're always the radical ones. They always feel this way. You know, there's a quote that's, I think, erroneously ascribed to Winston Churchill a lot of the time, right, where he, uh, he said or he's alleged to have said, if you're not a liberal when you're 20, you have no heart. And if you're not a conservative at 50, you have no brain or something like mm-hmm. that. And that's how a lot of people think that, uh, you know, politicization works. So, you know, presumably in 25 years on the basis of that, I'm going to be I'm going to become a political moderate. I'm going to decide that Bill Clinton and Barack Obama were actually pretty good. But it's oh, not actually by that by, by that calculation, since I'm older than you. I should be joining QAnon right now. <laughs> That's right, and the fact that you haven't, I think, is 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 emblematic of uh, you know this uh, generational politics having a limited uh, a limited utility. It's it's just not the case um, that you know one's age defines one's politics. But uh, it is the case that younger people today are more radical. I think uh, qualitatively more radical than earlier generations of young people, if you want, or they're more drawn to the political left. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but uh, if you go back to uh, the first Ronald Reagan election or Margaret Thatcher's first election victory in 1979, find that she actually, uh, well, both of them won uh, the youth vote. So they did very well among, um, you know, voters 18 to 30 and then also uh, 30 to 40. Um, and what you find today is that, uh, you know, the, the, the levels of support among people under 40 from, you know, uh, for someone like Bernie Sanders or uh, in the UK, Jeremy Corbyn, um, when he was leading the Labour Party. I mean, these are these are numbers upwards of 80 or, you know, 85 uh, percent in the, you know, in the context of the, the UK electorate, certainly, and in the context of the Democratic primaries as well. So there is uh, there is something that's happened. And I think it's um, it's a result of uh, br- the broad life experiences of, of people of a particular generation who, you know, who've grown up um, in a political context that is constantly shutting down uh, or precludes, if you want, um, uh, political progress and and um, you know and many younger people are are downwardly mobile you know they're not able to uh, have the kinds of uh, trajectories that people of previous generations have because um, you know they haven't grown up with a welfare state and uh, cheaper or free tuition and um, you know and and uh, uh, you know uh, uh, good good you know good paying jobs that they could enter right out of college or even right out of high school so I think. 
that that kind of thing has uh, has very much shaped the perspective and, and the radicalization of people uh, of a particular generation. Well, how influential have all the TV shows that deal with politics been uh, in in the past? Shows like The Daily Show and West Wing, more recently, the cable news pundits on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox. Although CNN I mean, I, has just decided to become a little less politically left. <laughs> uh, well, this surprises me because I would I would I would hardly call CNN a firebrand uh, network to begin with. But um, uh, yes, I mean I'm glad you bring this up because the response of uh, to the book so far has mostly dealt with you know the critique of, of you know liberals specifically that's found in the earlier sections. But there's a lot more in there, and there's you know a whole section dealing with um, the media as well, and and with and that's why with I culture. brought it up. Yeah, so I, I very much appreciate that. And uh, I think that uh, cable news is hugely influential, although, again, uh, it's generationally influential because, um, you know, uh, cable news, the audience for it uh, tilts much older uh, or tends to, but hugely influential um, uh, there. I mean, one of my favorite essays in the book is uh, not about a cable news show, but about the, the West Wing, uh, the television show, which, you know, I watched with uh, great enthusiasm when I was a teenager and in my early 20s. Um, and that was written originally, I think, back in 2017. And at the time, um, I, I felt that the West Wing reflected uh, a certain perspective rather than, you know, having influenced it. But I think I've increasingly come around to the view that actually in that particular case, the show was very influential for people who went on to work in the Obama administration and went on to work in uh, democratic politics in a, in some capacity. And I think it really did play a role in shaping. Uh, I know it sounds a little absurd, but in shaping aspects of the, uh, at least the sensibility of the Obama administration. Um, well, you know, don't you mean 1997, not 2017? Uh, well, I, 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 I should have been more precise. I mean, the, the article, the essay I wrote about oh, it was in it was 2017. 2017. Mm -hmm. But, but it's a, but it's, uh, this is worth discussing as well. I mean, the West Wing first aired at the end of the 1990s. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and I think ended in 2006 or something like that. And so in a way, uh, it feel you know it feels absurd. Why would there be an essay about it in a, in a book uh, in a book published in 2022? Um, but I think the reason is that uh, the, the the show was part of a small constellation of you know cultural objects that just became uh, you know overriding um, in its influence, and that's very important in the case of the West Wing because, as I argue in the book, it's it's you know it's very much a, a liberal fantasy. It's a very idealized vision of politics, but importantly, the idealism in the show, such as it is, I think is all about, uh, it's all about appearances and aesthetics. It's about the, the, the reasonableness of the characters and their ability to compromise and how stylishly uh, President Bartlett, uh, played by Martin Sheen, you know, speaks. It's by the end of uh, this liberal fantasy where there's a two-term Democratic president, it's unclear whether they've actually... Uh, you know, they, whether they've uh, implemented any significant reforms at all. And I think, uh, I think that's significant because uh, it tells you, it's instructive that the fantasy is really one of aesthetics rather than political substance. Why do you think so many blue-collar workers who in the past were likely to be strongly in support of the Democratic Party have moved to the right? 
Well, this is one of the most important uh, discussions, I think, in 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 uh, political discourse today. It is so important this realignment of um, you know blue collar voters in particular, but white collar voters as well. Um, this is going on not just in the United States, but um, but all over the place. There's been a, a dealignment of a type of class based voting that happened for much of the 20th century to a, a type of voting that I think is m- perhaps more cultural in nature. It has more to do with, um, you know, one of the single biggest factors in whether someone votes Democratic or Republican is uh, whether they have a, you know, a college degree, um, for example. But, the, um, but a lot so- of those blue collar workers were union members. Wouldn't that have kind of led, uh, suggested that they would have a, a more liberal attitude? Well, historically, it, it would. And, and this is part of the... Uh, is it know, the, the change the, in unions? Uh, is that part of the problem? There's, there are a number of factors that I think are, are working in tandem to produce this dynamic we see uh, today. One of them is... Uh, yes, the fact that there's a, a concerted onslaught against unions in, uh, you know, the 1970s and especially in the 1980s. I mean, you know, epitomized by Reagan's, you know, uh, war on the air traffic controllers uh, in particular and in, in you know, Britain, uh, Thatcher's war on the miners. Um, so, you know, and at the, at the same time, right, the, the actual economic base for unionization, manufacturing, you know, part of the neoliberal project is to outsource those jobs elsewhere so that, um, you know, the people who own those companies uh, have lower labor costs and are thus able to draw higher profits. I mean, that was really the point of it. Um, and so, so all of that's going on. But, you know, in the 1990s, uh, just specifically talking about the Democratic Party, I mean, there is a concerted attempt. They're not trying to keep many of those voters. Um, or, In fact, you know, they- can I interrupt for a second? Um, the, the rules of American politics have favored small rural states since the country's beginning. And haven't Democratic Party leaders seem to have done little to counter Republicans' efforts to siphon away less educated voters by using things like religious controversies? Yes, I think that's uh, I think that's absolutely true. And I think at the same time, the Democrats have, you know, from Bill Clinton onwards, you know, the so-called Atari Democrats uh, really up until the present have been much more interested in, uh, you know, centering uh, their own constituency on a much more affluent and suburban type of voter. Um, There was a, you know, a now ominously prophetic remark that Chuck Schumer gave um, just before the 2016 election, which, of course, uh, the Democrats lost, where he said, you know, uh, for every for every blue collar voter we lose in, uh, you know, uh, Ohio, we're going to pick up three in the suburbs of Philadelphia or some, something that was, you know, something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing. But that really uh, sums up the attitude of Democratic strategists um, and the ideology of of the Democratic Party, the reigning one, uh, for the past 25 or 30 years. There's a, um, you know, a sense that, well, we don't actually need this blue-collar constituency. Um, and, uh, you know, if they vote for us, great. But, you know, if not, we're going to try to win uh, the suburbs. And that strategy failed absolutely disastrously in, in 2016 because, of course, Trump's victory in the Electoral College, he lost the popular vote, was enabled by victories in Ohio, in uh, Wisconsin, which was, you know, Wisconsin was 
a bastion of American, not just liberalism, but radicalism going back, you know, 100 years or so. Um, and so uh, it wasn't just that Trump won. It was the nature of the victory and the failure of the democratic strategy that was important to that. And, you know, that strategy had to do with courting uh, more affluent, educated white collar voters at the expense of the blue collar ones that had been in the uh, democratic coalition, uh, I suppose, from the 1930s, especially onward. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Luke Savage. His book, The Dead Center, Reflections on Liberalism and Democracy After the End of History, is published by O.R. Books. The, um, the, no, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. The FCC wants me to say that. Uh, the U.S. President's party has historically done worse in off-year elections but um, the the current prognosis is unclear. What's your take on what's going on? Well, uh, I agree that the uh, prognosis is unclear, and, and I'm always wary about making predictions. But uh, I think if I'm uh, if I'm I correctly identifying what I think is the subtext of your question. You know, I think there had been a view the Democrats were inevitably headed for a wipeout because of the, uh, you know, the tradition that you that you mentioned. And the fact that um, Biden's ratings were incredibly low and mm-hmm. the economy seemed to be suffering. And now uh, they've and now, improved to the point where Mitch McConnell has suggested that they're likely to gain seats in the Senate. Yes. And I mean, this really would be a break with uh, with tradition. Um, And I think there are two possible explanations. We'll have to wait and see. I mean, one of them is the fact that, uh, you know, in in a a, I'll be in a diminished form. You know, uh, Biden did, uh, you know, cancel up to ten thousand dollars of student debt for for people, Mm -hmm. which is just, you know, it's that's a concrete, uh, you know, deliverable. Um, It's not a you know, the initial initially the promise was to do a lot more than that. But when you put uh, money in people's pockets, uh, you know, guess what? They like it. Um, and that was the same. You know, Biden's approval ratings were soaring at the start of his first term because of, uh, you know, the the, the huge uh, spending package, the American Rescue Plan that was passed and all of the relief, the unemployment checks and, uh, you know, other income supports that were delivered. And I think we're seeing a version of that um, today as well. The other thing I would say is, I mean, I really do think that the overturning of Roe versus Wade, um, which was, you know, a Republican, the Republican Party has been extreme for a long time. But this is, um, you know, this is absolutely horrific what uh, this uh, Supreme Court captured by, uh, you know, right wing justices, a majority of whom were appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote. Um, a number of whom have ties to the Federalist Society. Um, you know, this this uh, this decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, I think, has understandably and rightly been very radicalizing for people. It's uh, it's it's may have been a case of political overreach um, for the Republican Party. They've overreached before, but in this case, I think there's rightly a backlash uh, against it. And the Democrats being the other party um, are, are, you know, it's possible they will benefit from that. I'm assuming that there are Republican women who've had abortions. Yes, I think that's a, I think that's a very safe assumption. And I mean, it's important to uh, register the, the wider significance of the, uh, of, of, of the overturning of Roe versus Wade, um, because so much of what, uh, 
you know, are the big uh, agenda items for the conservative right today are supported by a very small minority of people. That's true of reproductive rights. Um, it's true on voting rights as well. I mean, you know, most people think voting should be relatively easy, that the franchise shouldn't be restricted um, on racial or, or any other uh, any other grounds. Um, and, you know, most people didn't support the huge tax cut for billionaires and other wealthy people that passed during the Trump presidency. Um, but again and again, um, you know, Trump, Mitch McConnell and the Republican Party have been very adept at pushing a you know, minority agenda with without a lot of popular buy-in through um, the structures of American politics, which are very captured by special interests and organized money, and which also, as you said earlier, you know, favor rural states and are um, anti-majoritarian by design. The U.S. Senate is one of the most mm-hmm. uh, undemocratic bodies in the, uh, you know, upper, upper houses, rather, I think probably anywhere in the democratic world. And it goes back um, to the writing of the Constitution. Uh, we have just a couple of minutes left, and uh, I just want uh, you to address a couple of of the the people you've uh, written about in your book um, and and their possible futures in American politics. Pete Buttigieg, uh, Beto O'Rourke, Amy Klobuchar uh, in particular. Uh, Anything you want to say about where you see things are going, especially since many people are predicting that Biden may not decide to run for a second term? Well, I think all of those people, possible exception of O'Rourke, but uh, possibly all of them uh, would would uh, be potential candidates if Biden were not to run for reelection. Um, I think uh, Buttigieg in particular is, um, you know, I think he's, he's being openly talked about in some circles as a, as a potential candidate. Um, in terms of their, you know, appearances in the book, I mean, a lot of the essays or some of the essays anyway were written during the primaries and had to do with, the particular shades and styles of centrism that I thought uh, these various figures represented. So, um, and, and I, I have my doubts that any of these are, uh, have much viability electoral or otherwise. I mean, uh, when Beto O'Rourke declared his presidential campaign and was on the cover of Vanity Fair, he was talk, talked about as the second coming of Robert Kennedy and his campaign fl- uh, flamed out, burnt out in a few weeks. Amy Klobuchar was somebody who, and this is why uh, I included uh, her in the book. I mean, she's somebody who was talked about over and over again by certain figures in the media as the most electable candidate, which was premise think belied somewhat by the fact that she kept coming in fourth or fifth in <laughs> uh, in primaries um so the most electoral can most electable candidate who very very few people you know who uh, aren't on an editorial board somewhere seem interested in voting for and um you know pete pete Buttigieg um was somebody who performed best in iowa which you know is a is a is a place that you know historically is a place where you know it's it's distinct as a as a caucus from other uh from other contests because you know it's a small state and uh you know and by by the nature of being a caucus a little different and as soon as uh as soon as uh things moved on from iowa he was um you know not very effective either um electorally but uh you know, it, he is still somebody that is talked about today as a future presidential candidate. I, I personally find that very baffling. Um, but I think, broadly speaking, um, a lot of this has to do with, uh, you know, uh, the promotion of, of somebody like him has to do with uh, trying to work within the template set out by Barack Obama, who, of course, did did 
did practice the same kind of politics, I would argue, much more effectively and skillfully. Um, there's just a, I have to a desire. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry I'm being too long-winded, but I no, enjoyed okay. this very much, Leonard. Thanks for having me. Well, I think you, you cover a lot of important subjects here, and I'm very pleased that we had an hour to talk about them. Uh, I've been speaking with Luke Savage, a staff writer at Jacobin, whose work has appeared in The Atlantic, The New Statesman, The Washington Post, and The Guardian. And uh, his book is The Dead Center, Reflections on Liberalism and Democracy After the End of History, published by OR Books. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks so much, Leonard. Take care. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. Uh, you can check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and then the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you don't get anywhere else. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you can uh, get a copy of the book we've been discussing if you make a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate right now. The book, The Dead Center, Reflections on Liberalism and Democracy After the End of History by Luke Savage. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, and you will say thank you if you do that, if $10 a month or more with a WBAI tote bag. But either way, the important thing is to make that tax-deductible contribution to help keep this station going. We're the only one on the New York radio dial that is 100% listener-sponsored. And we hope you can join us tomorrow when my guests Bill Halverson and Joshua Reno will discuss their new book, Imagining the Heartland. We'll see you then.